Welcome to the Engage and Empower podcast. Behind every successful company is an intentional and innovative approach to empowering your most valuable asset, your people. Join me in having conversations with people and talent leaders as we share our journeys and unpack what it takes to build strong, cohesive teams and employee experiences. From executives at early stage startups to innovators at large public companies, we'll capture the compelling stories of the people behind People Teams. Hey everyone, thanks so much for tuning in to the Engage and Empower podcast. I'm your host, Rusika Rajagopalan, and today is a very special conversation because I'm chatting with an old friend, Archana Ramesh, the head of people science for Asia Pacific at Glint, which was recently acquired by LinkedIn. Archana, as you may remember, you were one of the first people I reached out to when I was considering a pivot into the people and talent space. You're one of the few people I knew in tech and in people operations. It was just a totally different world from where I was coming from. So I still remember sitting in my Boston apartment with my list of questions I had for you and fast forward today and here we are. So thank you so much for making time, for being on the show and being a critical piece to my career journey so far. Thanks so much, Rasika. And it's great to be here. And I love what you're doing here. And yes, I absolutely remember our conversation when you were talking about getting into the people field. And I also remember way back when, when I knew you from back in North Carolina. So we go way back for sure. So great to be here and great to talk to you today. Yeah, I love it. It's been a minute. I'm really eager to hear all about your story and everything you've been up to lately, including your move to Singapore where you're now working. So if you wouldn't mind getting us started by giving listeners just a quick background and intro on you and on Glint and what people science is all about, that would be great. Sure. Happy to do that. I'll, I'll do it in the order of talking a little bit about Glint, about people science, and then last about me. So Glint is a platform that very simply enables the habits that research tells us are foundational for companies. So people can be happier and more successful at work. So when we talk about these habits, they're really about how do we install a culture of frequent feedback? How do we use that feedback to have uh, focused and intentional conversations about the things that matter, take action to improve together, and learn and grow together. And we found that when companies get these habits right, what we call people's success habits, their people thrive and businesses perform better. So that's really what we're focused on enabling. Uh, So Glint was founded in 2013 in the San Francisco Bay Area, where I know you are now. And as you mentioned, we were acquired by LinkedIn in November of 2018. And so we're now part of the LinkedIn sort of suite of talent solutions products. So that's just a little bit about Glint. The people science team within Glint is really embedded at the heart of what Glint does. So we work directly with our clients to help them with the mindset shifts, the strategic shifts uh, that are critical to adopting these habits that I mentioned. We primarily work with the C-suite because we know that there are critical change icons at, at organizations. We also work very closely with the product team to embed behavioral science and research into the product itself. And we think that's incredibly important because, you know, as a consultant, I'm one person who can be in the room for one conversation that's not scalable. When you put it into the technology, it scales and we can put it in directly in the hands of managers and teams in the flow of work and the flow of the interactions that are happening every day on the ground. So that's really what the people science team does. And as you mentioned, I moved out here 
in October of 2019. So just a few months before the pandemic hit, I moved to Singapore. Uh, so timing is everything, right? Uh, so I moved out here to help expand the Glint footprint in, in this part of the world in Asia Pacific, as well as build out a team and the function for people's science. I'll keep my background very short, but I mean, I've been with Glint about four years and really gotten to be part of an amazing journey and team over the last four years. And before that, I've kind of done the gamut of really everything in the people space from generalist roles to talent strategy roles to analytics roles. So been there, done it all, even did a standard management consulting, um, but feel like I really found the sweet spot now of, you know, working with customers, helping them really transform who they are through their people using science, using everything we know about the science of motivation. Yeah, you have such a cool background. And I think it's really interesting that Glint works so closely with executives and other product leaders. I love how much more data driven in general, the, the people function has become. And that's kind of what I wanted to kind of focus on today with you. You recently released a report around your insights after looking at tons of people data through 2020. Glint works with so many different companies and with some predictions that you have around things that will be critical for businesses to focus on in 2021. One of the things that you talked about in your report was burnout risk. With more companies going remote, staffing leaner teams and making up for pandemic-related cuts, there's there's a lot of risk and around burnout. And what stood to me was your insight that one of the highest predictors for burnout was actually lack of career development or learning opportunities, which was really eye-opening to me as somebody that, you know, traditionally correlates long hours with burnout risk. And I know both of those do play a, a contributing role, but talk to us a little bit more about what you found there. Sure. Yeah, it's really interesting, right? So let me just start by saying that, you know, the, really this is the power of asking your people and not making assumptions about what people are, want or need. And fortunately, a lot of our customers understood that very early on in the pandemic, that with so much uncertainty, with so much clearly things that we were all experiencing for the first time in, in lived memory, they couldn't necessarily claim to know everything that people needed or wanted. And so they asked. Uh, so we worked with a lot of companies at the time to send out short focus pulses to inform you know, quick and incisive action. So through that, over the course of last year, we collected over 9 million data points that gave us insight into some of the key trends and patterns that we needed to pay attention to as it related to taking action over the course of this year. And one of the things, as you mentioned, is that burnout risk is at an all-time high. And by the way, it was at an all-time high last August, and it's only gotten worse uh, since then. So clearly, it's an issue that a lot of organizations need to deconstruct. And it's really not hard to imagine why that you know burnout might be at an all-time high. As you mentioned, there is so much going on that you know, between childcare and elder care, or even if you live alone, just dealing with a social disconnection, there's just so much happening. And that's not even all of what's happening, right? People's uncertainty about their jobs and just general uncertainty about when we're going to come out of the pandemic. So all of this has clearly compounded the situation. So of course, it was important for us to understand what is happening. What is What are the drivers of increased burnout risk that we can tangibly focus on and improve so that we can, by effect, reduce burnout risk as well. So what we found was a list of unpredictable and predictable factors underneath. So, you know, work-life balance, for example, or lack thereof was certainly a factor. But as you mentioned, career development and growth was too. So 
what we found in the data was that if people feel they don't have our opportunities to learn and grow, they're over three times as likely to experience burnout. And that is, you know, really interesting, as you mentioned. And, you know, let's think about the psychology of that a little bit. When we, when there's so much uncertainty and there's so much we don't have control over, when your company is investing in your growth and promoting career development, you're signaling a few things, you know, right? First, you're signaling that my growth matters to you. And so I feel value. And even if the future of the company is uncertain, I see a future at the company because, again, you're investing in my development, which is, you know, certainly longer term. And so that's another factor. Uh, you know, LinkedIn, which of course has a learning platform as well, they saw record levels of engagement with their digital learning platform during the first few months of COVID. And that, again, is so interesting when you think about everything that was happening around that time, the fact that people were actually taking time out of their workday to go engage in digital learning. And we saw the courses that they were taking were everything from how do they work and better collaborate virtually to stress management to all of the things that, again, you wouldn't necessarily think people would take time out of their data to get learning opportunities on. But I think that inherently that is a lesson here, right? Learning gives people a sense of agency in the midst of chaos. That fosters a growth mindset, which is also in research linked to improve resiliency. And resiliency is critical to help navigate change. So it's kind of a virtuous cycle of when you invest in growth and development, you really tap into people's sense of agency, people's sense of security in the midst of chaos. And the good thing about it is that, you know, growth is, of course, when you invest in learning, you're helping people develop the skills that they need for the future. So it's really a win-win situation. So I'd say companies that are focused on it right now are really investing in long-term sustained engagement and retention of their people. Yeah. I mean, it makes a lot of sense because you could be burned out from a monotonous 40-hour week job or less where you don't feel invested in and you don't feel like your work is contributing to something bigger that will serve you long term. And then the other thing that I you know, think you touched on there is that employees are looking to work at companies that they feel like are preparing for scale. And if you're not investing in your employees and giving them more and more and more tools as their you know, role will inevitably kind of expand in scope then, you know, they're not being equipped appropriately. And that's, you know, something that isn't great, that the company's not setting themselves up super well. And so I think through this time to everything you're saying, the investment in learning and development will be really critical to driving value and giving back to employees and then also setting up your own company for success. Somewhat aligned to that, you also talk about trust and empowerment needing to replace command and control kind of moving forward in 2021. So what do you think about 2020 caused that shift and what do organizations need to be thinking about in this area as they look forward? Yeah, uh, just to iterate, you know, conversations around trust and empowerment are not new, right? I've been in, in the industry for a little over a decade, and we've been talking about the importance of empowerment for a long time. But what, as with a lot of things, the, the events of 2020 certainly catalyzed the conversation. And now coming into 2021, I think we are dealing with a fundamental reframe in how we think about empowerment in the workplace. So when organizations went virtual overnight, right, something that most companies never imagined they would be able to do, uh, right, even the most innovative companies, right, you think about the Googles and the Facebooks of the world, they built beautiful campuses because they want people to congregate and work at work, right, be in the workplace. But even they had to go virtual overnight, right. And I think the underlying fear of why people never really fathomed this is a real, you know, something that we 
could feasibly do in the past was there was a fear that if you let employees work from home, they're going to be watching Netflix on the couch all day. And the truth, what we saw in the data and what was really interesting is so we're, you know, we're part of LinkedIn, which is part of Microsoft. So we get to see and, and look at patterns in Microsoft usage data, which of course, you know, there's a lot of email and teams and meeting data that's in there. And overwhelmingly, what the data showed was that productivity levels were either stay the same or even improve when we were working from home. Uh, part of this was because people were working longer hours, but even so, clearly the fundamental idea that we can only be productive if we're in the office physically looking at each other has been kind of turned over its head. And so it, that essentially says that everything managers and leaders thought to be true about how work gets done needs to be refreshed. So rather than I can only manage what I can control we empower and trust, right? That's the fundamental reframe here, right? It's about being less of a micromanager and being more of a macro manager, helping your team connect to what matters, why it matters, what should we focus on, and equally, what should we not focus on? And I think this really elevates the importance of some of the power skills that managers need to get right. So, you know, caring, connecting, clarifying versus managing through fear and mistrust, which for the record flies in the face of everything we know about human motivation and what makes people thrive, right? Mistrust and fear has never been the way to get the best out of people. You just talked a little bit about, you know, the sort of intrinsic motivation and desire for purpose and growth. And, you know, those are the things that help people sustainably stay engaged in the longer term. And that's what managers need to tap into versus feeling like they just need to manage to output through to mistrust. So I think the call for action here is more than ever for organizations to really focus on how are they effectively developing their managers to, with these power skills that help them manage through empowering their people by helping making sure that their people feel cared for and support it at work versus feeling like they need to really just, you know, manage through fear. So I think that's the revelation here that we can carry forward into 2021 and beyond. Yeah, it feels like the role of the manager is getting increasingly more and more important, especially as we make this transition to distributed work. And it's a really rare uh, skill, I think, to be a great manager. It's something that requires a lot of practice and development. Would you say moving forward, companies need to be investing in this earlier on? And you know, there are just so many more things that managers are driving in a remote world. There's less maybe visibility they have into work. There's less face time that they have with their teams. So is this something that you think is going to require a lot more enablement than it did in the past? Well, I don't know that we need a lot more. I think we need different types of enablement. I think in the past, there's been too much reliance on kind of, I've been there myself, you know, day-long manager training workshops. And what we know about those workshops is, yes, it's, it's a great opportunity to get people in a room and help them, you know, think critically about important skills. But then the application of those skills and real behavior change is often left wanting, right? So I think we need to think differently about how we equip our managers. Obviously, it goes without saying that first, there needs to be expectations set around what great people management looks like. And then I, you know, I talked about the habits that matter at the very beginning, right? I talked about how we're focused on enabling the four people success habits. And I think that's fundamental to how we think about people development in the future, rather than, again, just making this about daylight workshops. How do we give people focused feedback in the flow of work? So that I, as a manager, know what I'm doing well and what I need to work on, and then link me directly to bite-sized relevant learning resources that will help me 
build a skill or unlearn a skill. And again, in the flow of work, right? So not making me step away from from work because I might not have that time or I might feel overwhelmed if I have to do that. And then enable me to have great conversations with my people. I think that's one of the things I've learned a lot in, you know, doing a lot of user research around manager behavior over the last few years is that sometimes it's as simple as giving a manager a script they can follow to have hard conversations. And a lot of these things, you know, even the smartest people in the world when it comes to talking to their people can have things they need to work on, right? So give them a script. I know I as a manager uh, myself have really benefited from that. When I feel like I'm going into a hard conversation, when I have a simple script with prompts to follow, it's not that I'm just going off of the script, but it makes sure that I'm having a productive conversation and I'm much more you know, focused and open in that conversation. So I think there's simple things we can do to help build our manager's capabilities and really do it in the flow of work. So it feels less like, oh my God, I have to do this on top of my day job. And I understand that this is part of my day job, right? This is These are the skills that will boost my effectiveness in my day job. And so that's, I think, how we need to think about manager training in the future. Yeah, that's super helpful. I love the bite size because to your point, then you have, okay, this one thing that I learned, now I can go practice it and see how it lands. And then I can learn this other thing. I also like scripts in manager uh, workshops. I also like role playing and bringing a situation and having other people give you feedback on how you went into a conversation. Like what were their takeaways? Were they the same as what you were hoping for that person to get out of the conversation? And oftentimes, you know, you find that there are opportunities to communicate differently or add verbiage to what you're saying so that the other person actually is taking away the the exact same message. Absolutely. So, yeah. Absolutely. I, yeah, I, I work with a lot of companies and, you know, HR leaders who tell me, you know, when it comes to people science that, you know, we need to make sure we have all the data right. And, you know, the analytics need to be airtight because we're talking to CEOs who are so smart and very analytical and, you know, need, we need to make sure that we, everything is founded in data and science and totally agree with that. But at the end of the day, we're talking about human to human connection here in the workplace. And so even the smartest of people, like I said, have things they need to work on just like they do in any relationship or anything. Right. So I think the beauty of what we do here is matching the science with the art using, you know, data and making data informed decisions, but then equally focusing on the art of this, which is, you know, the skills that I just talked about, and embedding those and helping our managers practice those skills, like you said, in a very safe way, so they can take that and, and apply it directly into how they're getting work done. Yeah, I love it. Switching gears a little bit. In your report, you also talk about the progress of diversity, equity, and belonging over the years and how there was a lot of progress. It plateaued a little bit. And then, you know, more recently, it's picked up a lot more momentum. And you talk about the role that executive leaders have had in, you know, overcoming that plateau and driving more progress and the focus that, you know, executive leaders will need to have in driving this work in years forward. So what do you think executive leaders will need to be doing more of in the future that would was historically missing? What did you see there? So in 2020, as if a pandemic wasn't enough, you know, it brought into focus what I think many of us have known for a long time, but we've been avoiding mainstream, active mainstream conversations about, right, that we operate within systems that perpetuate inequities and racism. This wasn't necessarily new to people of color who have been operating within those confines and trying to find ways to shatter those ceilings. But for people whose privilege meant that didn't even maybe have never had insight into some of the 
inequities and how they're impacting those without those privileges. I think potentially this was kind of a moment of awakening. So let's even say for the sake of argument that you weren't aware of all of this, right? You as a leader of an organization or someone who's not had to deal with some of these inequities directly, you weren't aware of what was happening. Well, now you are, right? So you can't fake ignorance anymore. And, you know, I heard this quote once, which, which really stuck with me, which is knowing what you know, what will you do about it? And I think that is the fundamental question for a lot of leaders now, knowing what you know, what will you do about it? And I think this is really that moment where we need to hold our leaders and leaders need to hold themselves accountable to answering that question. So I led a pretty extensive piece of research in around a DNI in late 2019, which informed some work we were doing with our customers at the time and, and now as well around dibs, um, diversity, inclusion and belonging, as we call it. And what I found in the data back in 2019 was that progress around DEI has been painfully slow, as you mentioned, right? So far too few women and people of color in positions of influence within organizations. And, you know, what we also found was that the root of this is because we've been giving lip service to the issue, right? We've been checking all the compliance training boxes, we've been doing all the investor report metrics tracking, but we haven't done the hard work. Even till now, there are people having conversations about the ROI of DNI. And I mean, let's just stop, right? I mean, if you're putting it to, if you're somewhere in the world right now listening to this, putting together a deck explaining the ROI of DNI to your leaders, I mean, just stop. Because if your leaders still don't get it, there's no amount of data or anything you can put together to try to convince them, right? This is the right thing to do. And we know it. It's good for business. It's good for people. So what I'll say is 2021 is time for leaders to really lead from the front as it relates to DNI rather than making it just an HR issue or a diversity office problem to solve. I think leaders have to own up to the work they personally have to do and their organization has to do, make commitments for improvement and do the hard work to meet those commitments. I think it's time for companies to stop just focusing on vanity metrics and focus more on, you know, real robust measures of inclusion that show that we're improving representation that matters. But then equally, when we bring diverse populations into our organization, we're also investing in cultures where people can be bring their you know, whole selves to work, they can feel that they belong, they feel they can find success because they see other people who look like them or come from similar backgrounds were also in positions of influence and success. And they really feel that they have, you know, they will be supported in the organization, not despite who they are, but because of who they are. And so I think that is the real call to action here is to really get out from behind the metrics that maybe make us all feel okay with what we're doing and really start having those hard conversations and doing the hard work of uh, progressing the conversation as it relates to battling systemic inequities and, and racism, you know, both inside and outside the workplace. I think 2020, again, was revelatory in that I think in a lot of organizations, you know, racism was uh, topics around that were still things you don't talk about at work. I think we've finally gotten to a place where we realize we can't afford to do that anymore. And the way, you know, most adults spend most of their time in the workplace. So we have to talk about how these issues show up at work and what are we going to do to battle it. And again, I think it's really time for leaders to answer the question of knowing what I know now, what am I going to do about it and hold themselves accountable for it? 
Yeah, totally. And I think industry moves faster than government does at times. And so there's a huge opportunity that a lot of uh, these leaders have. It's obviously easier said than done. What have you seen work really well at the executive level? Is it, you know, opening up a conversation that's facilitated by somebody that can come in and do sort of a study and, and place your observations on the table? Is it aligning around core philosophies? Like, where do you start? Yeah, I think all those things, I think the first and foremost is opening up that conversation in an authentic way. Again, not the, well, I'm sure your communications are still going to be drafted by your internal comms office, but um, still making sure that you as a leader are showing up authentically into that conversation, talking about what your journey has been personally, the things you know you need to work on, because that's the only way we, again, have a transparent, vulnerable conversation around this. None of us are perfect. We all have work to do as it relates to you know, improving inclusion and belonging in the workplace. So I think the way leaders can frame the conversation is through authenticity and vulnerability from themselves and set the stage for that conversation. I think a facilitated conversation with your leaders is a great idea because you can sort of get everything out there, make sure that you as a leadership team are, again, committed to improvement and using showing up that way and setting the tone for the rest of the managers and leaders in your organization. I think, again, ensuring that employee feedback as part of that is really important as well, because, you, again, there's a lot of things you can assume without asking. So making sure that you are getting your people's feedback, obviously, including those who might be people of color and women in the workplace, using that feedback to inform action is important. And then ensuring that you have a diversity inclusion strategy that's really looking across your entire employee life cycle, because that's the other thing we found about it, right, is that, you know, everything about research tells us inclusion, it's a systemic event or a systemic thing. It's not events, right? It's not just one point in time, I feel a sense of inclusion, and then that the work is done, right? It's dynamic. It's happening all the time. There's so many moments in my interaction in the workplace where I can either feel a sense of inclusion or feel a sense of exclusion. and so. Companies really need to be thinking about this in a very holistic way. So for CEOs and, and leaders, you know, it's important for them to work with their HR partners, with their diversity partners, not to make it a diversity office problem or an HR problem, but to really co-create a solution where we're thinking about all the different touch points we have with our employees and how are we ensuring we're embedding inclusion into those experiences. And we already talked about the importance of managers that will, again, continue to be true here as well, because we need them to show up in an inclusive way. And so I know a lot of companies, including LinkedIn, for that matter, are really investing in manager capability development around having inclusive conversations in the workplace this year. Because again, it, you know, it can't just be about the top of the house. They certainly set the tone. It's important that they set the tone, but we need to make sure managers are equipped to have these conversations. Yeah, 100%. I mean, I think about it kind of similar to if, if something's important to your business, you're going to hear about it at, from every level. Historically, you know, sales is something that's really important to a business. You hear your CEO report about it. You have conversations about it at the team level. Uh, you have conversations about it even with, you know, the most entry level employee that's coming in to join that team. So similarly, on the diversity, inclusion, belonging front, that is something that you want to see your CEO at those trainings, sending messages about, spending time at company meetings, discussing, because I think people need to see that from their leader to understand how mission critical it is or how much of a focus it is for your business. Speaking of executive leaders, the role of the, the CHRO or the chief people officer or whatever you, know, you call it at, at any company, that has also dramatically evolved 
over the last 10 years, let's say. And, you know, through other conversations I've had through this podcast with other HR leaders, many have actually commented around how it's actually evolved the most in the last year than it has in the last like 10 years combined. So what are your thoughts on this? And and how will the, you know, chief people officer role, you know, evolve and, and drive the future of work? Yeah, absolutely is something we're seeing as well. And I think 2020 has catalyzed HR's role in on the leadership team, right? So if you think about the last crisis we all faced, which was around 2008, 2010, that was a financial crisis, right? So that was really time for CFOs and COOs to shine, right? Because it was all about cost cutting, becoming more you know, streamlining, improving your financial standing in the face of a financial recession. But this crisis over the last year has been a public health crisis. It's been a crisis of people and their physical and mental safety. And so I think this is absolutely a time for CHROs to lead from the front and shape not just the ways we will, how work will get done in the future, but the cultures and behaviors that will help us support this new way of working. And, you know, when I started in this field over a decade ago, HR's role was becoming more important. um, Absolutely. But I think we were still suffering under the weight of practices that have honestly been around since the Industrial Revolution, right? We think about practices that promote compliance and safety and productivity, which were all very important at times when, you know, workers were facing really dire situations in, in the workplace. But clearly don't serve us well anymore. And I would say have actually come at the expense of being truly people centric. That also, I think, signals something about the pace at which we tend to innovate in the HR industry, which is clearly way too slow. But again, we're at a moment of reckoning here. I think this break in normal has given CHROs an opportunity, CPOs a real opportunity to fundamentally reframe the conversation, you know, banish some of those practices that have never served people well in the first place. And even think about something like the rank and yank philosophy that Jack Welch popularized. Again, that wasn't that long ago that we were talking about that as a real practice, HR practice that we would have in the workplace. And so I think it's really important for us to really kind of use this moment, break in normal to do away with those practices that have never helped us in the first place and focus on what will really help our people thrive. The good news is, again, because of what's happened in the last year, I think everyone gets it. I think so many companies have obviously already thinking about how to make flexible working and virtual working a core part of how organizations will behave in the future, how work will get done. I think people are recognizing that burnout is a CEO level issue to address. It's not, again, just an HR program or wellness program. It's a CEO level initiative. And I think employees' health, both physical and mental health, is being seen as a key issue that we all need to address. And so I think these are the moments where really CPOs, CHROs can step up, not necessarily to say they own the issue, but to work with their CEOs to co-create the solution, set the tone. And unfortunately, again, I'm seeing in a lot of companies that is happening, which is really encouraging. And honestly, for someone, again, who's been in this industry for over a decade and kind of seen the peaks and troughs of how we've innovated or not innovated, it's really encouraging to see, you know, CHROs really step up to the plate here and lead from the front. 
Yeah, totally. I think it's interesting that you say, you know, it's a CEO issue to address burnout. Like, I agree. I think before you get your your CHRO, I think your CEO is basically your de facto chief people officer. And I think even after they join, they really serve in that role. And so even at companies where they have a pretty, you know, stacked exec team, the CHRO role doesn't always exist. And so would you say it's necessary or are there circumstances or, you know, phases of growth where, you know, you feel like every organization really needs to have somebody dedicated? Uh, in that CPO role? Yeah, I, I think this is a really great question. I absolutely think there should be, when you get to a critical mass in an organization where you need to start thinking about scaling people practices, right? When you can't just gather 20 people into a room and do it yourself, you need to have someone who's dedicated to people's strategy, right? That doesn't mean it becomes any less your role as a CEO to care about people and culture. It just means that you have a co-pilot who's there with you, who is dedicated to thinking about people's strategy and enabling that people's strategy and helping you uncover your blind spots and being a coach for you in a certain sense as well, right? I think that's the role of the CPO. It's not necessarily, again, to own culture or to own people's strategy, but to really co-pilot those initiatives with their CEO. But I think absolutely having a CPO role early on in your evolution is really critical. So you set the tone, you think intentionally about how you're going to scale culture because it doesn't, I mean, culture is going to grow, evolve with the organization, whether you're intentional about it or not. I would say be intentional about it because that's what's going to make or break your organization in the longer term. We've all heard too many cautionary tales about companies that grew too fast and you know, the culture evolved out of their control. And before they knew it, it collapsed under its own weight. And so being intentional about culture, I think is so critical. People being intentional about your people's strategy is so critical. And a CPO can really absolutely be that partner in crime with a CEO to help make that reality. Yeah, no, I think that makes a ton of sense. Well, you've talked so much, uh, you know, about a lot of the data that you've gathered through the year. One of the things that you've also talked about in the past, and I think, you know, is an idea that Glint, you know, is, is really strong on is that conversations really serve as the fuel for action taking. It's not just about gathering the data and looking at the numbers itself. And so what is it that conversations really do? What is it that you've seen? And how would you encourage leaders that, you know, gather data like this to respond and discuss together as a group? Yeah, point of passion for me to talk about this. So we've at Glint really been focused on this idea of having frequent agile feedback strategy in organizations, right? But about probably three, four years ago, maybe at this point, we were working with a lot of customers who were coming to us and saying, listen, we get it. And yes, frequent feedback is really important. But where it's breaking down for us is that we feel like action is still not happening on the back of feedback. We're gathering all this data, but people aren't doing anything with it. Or we're really doing all the, it seems like we're doing all the wrong things, right? It still takes us way too long to take action on feedback. And so by the time you are even scratching the surface, it's already time for another pulse or survey cycle, right? So it sort of feels like we're perpetuating this cycle, never ending cycle of getting feedback, but not doing anything with it. And so I think it was really important. It's time for us to step back and be empathetic and understand that what our customers were presenting to us as a problem and kind of go, you know, understand what, what we could do about it. And what we found when we did research and kind of, again, talk to 
leaders and managers and everyone on the ground and, and looked at some of the behavioral elements of this was that far too often the way we were framing this is, was this is an action planning exercise versus an action taking exercise. And here's the thing, coming out of any survey, even a short pulse, there's thousands of data points for you to pay attention to. I mean, that's the stuff that people scientists like us geek out on, right? But all those data points, those thousands of data points can't feasibly result in thousands of action plans, right? Because we're just never going to survive under the weight of that. And that's fundamentally what's happening, right? We're coming out of each survey. I think sometimes people analytics functions can also do this where they look at all of these cool data cuts and all of these cool analytics. But then if they don't actually lead to something tangible that's actionable, then what's the point anyways, right? It's just sort of nice to know, not need to know. And so what we found was that when companies, rather than focus on, again, coming up with a massive action plan after every feedback cycle, just focus on picking one thing they're going to take action on and make commitments, act on it. Check in again a few weeks later on how we're doing. Are we doing well? Are we not doing well? And then sort of having this real incremental, continuous improvement mindset as it relates to people feedback and taking action on people feedback, they're fundamentally more likely to see results from their action rather than if they came up with a list of 10 things they want to take action on. And then it got deprioritized because the next time there's a fire to fight in the business, you don't have time for it anymore, right? So that we found was an important reframe. And along with that, we need to equip managers with being able to do this well, right? So again, it can't just be a top-down initiative where the CEO and the CPO are the only ones responsible for taking action on employee feedback. It has to be done at the ground level, which means we need to equip managers with this mindset and with the behaviors that underpin or, or really build on this mindset to have this action taking mentality as it relates to people feedback. And fundamental to that approach that I just mentioned is the ability to have great conversations. We say the survey is not the conversation. The survey is the start of the conversation, right? So take the survey feedback and then go to your people, have a conversation about what you're seeing and what is that one thing we need to focus on improving in the next few weeks? Not in the next few months, in the next few years, because God knows that time horizon, it's so much gonna, so much is gonna happen in that time horizon that we don't have control over. So let's focus on the next few weeks. What can we tangibly commit to? It's not just that the manager is the only one who has to take action, it's a team action. So let's create commitments together and then check in a few weeks later. How are we doing? What works well? What did we struggle with? Again, it's an important place for manager to show vulnerability as well. And then what's the next commitment we're making? And so when we make this bite size, when we make this as simple as that, we found that again, action taking becomes a more sustainable practice. And as you said, really conversations and having great, meaningful conversations are the core that underpins this new approach. And so that's where it comes back to what I mentioned earlier, which is give managers a simple script that they can follow to have these conversations. And, you know, we've done just that. We've embedded it into our product. And we found that it's really resonated when you make this feel really simple. Um, simple is not easy. I'll always like distinguish between that. This is hard stuff, but we can simplify it and give managers simple scripts they can practice. And the more they practice, the better they get at it. And it's like, you know, it's like building a muscle when you're working out, right? The more you work it, the stronger it gets. And so I think that's the repeatable process that we can create is is through those scripts and help managers have great conversations because those conversations in itself will become, you know, the thing that propels action versus feeling like you always have to come up with a huge action plan after every survey. 
Yeah, 100%. I think the conversations, they also, they build trust. Like, as you said, you're connecting with your manager versus it just being results shared from the top. I think the other thing is like a lot of times these surveys, you know, you want to make them easy. So they're 10 minutes. And so you're really getting a couple seconds of someone's thought on any given question. So you don't have, you don't have the full information. And the other thing is one of, at a past company, one of our executives, they led this data skeptics class where, you know, we learn a lot about, you know, how to think about data. And one of the things that he always shared was that out Outliers are important. Like, why did this customer have this particular experience? Like, we shouldn't just scrap all of the outliers. We should try and understand that story. So I think when you get people in a room together, you're actually kind of understanding individualized experiences, which are really important as a manager versus just kind of working off of, you know, what the majority is saying, because you can learn a lot from where, you know, there was a, a slightly different trend. So, Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Great stuff. Well, you know, switching gears uh, a little bit, I want to ask you what it's like working in tech in Singapore in Asia Pacific. You've worked in the heart of Silicon Valley. You've worked in New York City. Now you're in Singapore. Is it a different feel? Like, is the tech culture different there? And and if so, how? Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for that question. I, I love thinking about that. And I mean, frankly, one of the big reasons I moved to Singapore for this opportunity was because I was really passionate about you know, it's one thing to work for a global company in the place that it's headquartered and another thing to work in an office that's not the headquarters, right? It's just a different feel. And even for a global company working in a smaller regional office, I think is a very different feel. And personally, I was very passionate about working outside of the United States just to understand. I've done it in the past and I wanted to do it again. I've done it in Europe before. So this time I wanted to do it in Asia Pacific. And I really wanted to understand, you know, kind of to, to the heart of your question, how are we thinking about people and people's strategy and talent management and all of these fun things that I love doing, but how are we thinking about it in APAC? And so it's just been such a cool experience for me to kind of live and breathe this and being able to work across a region that's so diverse, right? You have, I get to work with Japan, India, Australia, Philippines, like there's just so much nuance to these conversations and cultures and the way that they impact, you know, the way we think about people's strategy. And that's just been really fun for me um, getting to sort of, you know, what's the difference or similarities. You know, one thing I will say is I'm a little bit spoiled because uh, I work for LinkedIn. And so from my perspective as an employee who works at a tech company, you know, LinkedIn's one of these kind of magical unicorn organizations that's figured out how to be really consistent with culture, no matter where they are in the world. So, you know, the values, the artifacts, the rituals of about how we operationalize culture, no matter which office we're in. And I've been to about 10 different LinkedIn offices around the world and now worked into, you know, LinkedIners really kind of embody the culture in a very consistent way. And that's honestly an incredible thing. And I think a testament to the fact that, again, our leaders don't just play lip service to the idea of culture, but really live and breathe the culture. So that's my experience as an employee is that it's been very consistent from any place else I've worked. But I also know it's sort of a unique organization to be in. But when I think about, you know, the work that I do with customers and working with other companies, it's, I will say, I don't think it's necessarily that different in terms of the way people are talking about people's strategy or people topics around um, people and culture in APAC versus in Silicon Valley. And that's been awesome to see, right? Like the conversations that I'm having around culture engagement with CPOs, even in this part of the world, is not that different from the conversations I was having back in the US. And I think that is 
cool in itself because I think, you know, even they take a topic like well-being and mental health, right? You just assume that in some countries in Asia, that would be a really hard conversation to have or be even a conversation no one's willing to have. But that's not true. Everyone gets it. Now, obviously, you know, it's important that we are not just talking about these issues, but acting on these issues, especially if you think about the fact that about 60% of the world's population lives in Asia. It's really important we get it right here, right? Even as we think about things like people about mental well-being and things like that. So yes, I would say the where there's difference is the readiness for transformation and change could look different when you talk to a Silicon Valley company versus let's say a customer in Japan. So what I'll say is everyone gets the issues we need to solve. The readiness for making that change happen might look different. The resources that you're willing to put against that might look different. And some other norms and embedded ways of working that, you know, you might have if you're, again, a Japanese headquartered company versus a Silicon Valley headquartered company might look different. But I would say, you know, no norm, here's the thing, right? No norm or way of working is inherently in conflict with people's success. Everywhere in the world, people are motivated by similar things and want similar things from the workplace. It's just a matter of how do we reimagine how that shows up, right? So a kind of a very archetypal thing we talk about when, when it comes to Asia is the idea of hierarchy and how, you know, cultures here tend to be very hierarchical. And so that inherently gets in the way of empowerment. I think there's a way to honor the fact, you know, the idea of people looking up to people with more experience or, you know, wanting to have that sort of really, you know, way to respect experience in the workplace, but still think about how we can make empowerment reality, right? So I think there's a way to kind of hold space for both things. I don't think it's either or. And I think those are the problems that we're trying to solve in Asia. And I, that's really fun. So I think, the simple answer to what you're asking is the conversations are all very much the same in terms of what we're trying to solve. The way we solve them, certainly reflecting some of the cultural nuances are, are can be different. And that's part of the fun. Yeah, I mean, I think it's awesome that you have that experience. I have not worked abroad, but I've worked at companies where we've had offices in many countries. And I think now what's really cool with Zoom and distributed work is I think a, people leaders can be a lot more connected to those global offices than they were in the past. And it's to a people leader's advantage to really understand each, you know, unique culture. And it's great to hear that, you know, like around the world, these conversations are are similar. And so it's really up to that leader to understand, okay, like, how do I drive change in this particular area? And what does empowerment look like here? Or what does, you know, enablement look like for this team? And so I think it's really cool that you have that experience. Well, Archana, this has been so much fun. And, you know, I love, I love the work you're doing. I love the insights that you've shared, I think it gives us a lot to think about as we move into this year. So where can people go to learn more about some of the insights that you've shared? And how do people learn more about Glint as a service if they're interested in leveraging, you know, y'all support? Yeah, well, find us on LinkedIn. <laughs> so we have the Glint community on LinkedIn. Certainly feel free to add me on LinkedIn as well. I love having conversations about people analytics, people in culture. So certainly feel free to connect with me. And then glintinc.com is our website. We have a lot of reports available that reference some of the things that you mentioned around some research we've done around uh, burnout and just people and culture and the things that really matter uh, as we think about the workplaces of the future. So go check out some of those resources. Our blog has a lot of great articles by some of my peers on the people science team uh, addressing, you know, important topics like diversity and inclusion or 
you know, well-being. So certainly feel free to check out our resources and connect with us on LinkedIn. Yeah, totally. Will do. Definitely be following all of your reports and insights this year. But yeah, great catching up with you as always. Yeah, it's so great to talk to you, Resica. And yeah, thanks for doing this. I think it's so important for us to have continue to have these conversations in the people and culture community. So thanks for pulling this together and getting these conversations going. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast and want to hear more stories like this, please subscribe for the weekly drop and feel free to share around with your people and talent colleagues. I'd love your feedback. So please leave a review and let us know what you enjoyed and what types of topics you'd like to see covered in the future. The more reviews and subscribers we get, the more quality content we can consistently deliver to you. If you're interested in being on the podcast, feel free to reach out to me at resica at engageandempower.org. See you next week.